in poverty, there's immense creativity is required. I definitely always try to be the dumbest guy in the room because then you can, you can learn a lot faster. I want to build this first flying car version of it, the street wing, get it flying. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with the awesome Najahi Events and Vault Hill, our new sponsors. Right, today's guest, Deza Molnar. Have you heard of him before? Let me give you a bit of a rundown here because this guy is not only a firecracker, but a crazy, obsessed, and awesome inventor. So he invented and built the gyro cycle. Previously, he was crew chief for Craig Breedlove's Spirit of America on the land speed racing team. He was on the crew that built and tested rocket planes and the rocket racing league. And he was a judge for the original X Prize. Do you remember the X Prize? Man, this guy's so cool. Okay, he invented and sold the Mixman DM2 remixer and to Atari and Mattel, recorded music with Casino Mansion and others, designed the audio program Blast Off, uh, an Ideal Labs project that is the foundation of of the Google Lunar X Prize. I mean, this guy really is one of those physicists, inventors, creators, and guys are obsessed with solving problems. I can't wait to share this interview with you. So without further ado, let's cue the music and get stuck in. Vault Hill is the world's first human-centric metaverse that's opened its doors for brands and entities to launch their presence in the metaverse in only 48 hours. This is the fastest activation ever and the first time ever any metaverse has offered this. Upon this activation process, brands will receive free virtual land in Vault Hill City and can give life to their metaverse presence by buying buildings in the Vault Hill marketplace and deploy it on their dedicated V-Land. Then brands can customize their land using unbounded creativity. They can display their own NFTs or upload different media, logos, or digital creations to start to capitalize from their digital assets. Go check out vaulthill.io. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Deja. Yes. Said it right? You said it right. Okay. Spencer, that's right. Deja, Deja, thanks for coming to join us on the show today. Thanks for uh, having me over here and sharing your audience. It's not often I get someone who as creative as you, but you said something before we started that really resonated with me. You said that people doing what you do, okay, are trying to stop suffering in some way. So just for the benefit of everybody that's watching today and listening, how would you describe yourself? I just say I'm an inventor because that's what I studied when I was a kid. I used to read books about inventors and I, I think that's, I was delusional at the time to think that reading a book about someone who'd succeeded at something was somehow relevant to my future experience. So I didn't read books about you know f sports players or anything like that. I just read lots and lots of biographies and autobiographies about inventors. So that was probably the key to uh, my ambition for that. And I'm definitely an aviator. I've always wanted to be an aviator, but uh, I try to just narrow it down to say I'm an inventor because I think that means you are always at the leading edge of whatever the state of the art is that you choose to participate in. And so. Throughout my life, I've often changed career fields effectively, but I want to make sure that before I start doing something, I understand uh, what the level is and whether or not I feel I have a reasonable capacity or probability to succeed in it or to enjoy it or to make a contribution. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it makes total sense to me. T take me back to you being young, because you told me a little while ago that you uh, are a triathlete. And so you've, you say you haven't been reading sports books, but you were clearly into sports and fitness, I suppose, in some way along the way. So what triggered that or what, 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 what started that journey for you as a young person? Was it mum, dad or friends and stuff like that? And then how did that then connect to you getting excited about aviation, inventing and stuff like that? The physical part started, I, I grew up uh, in Ohio where it was pretty cold most of the time. So it was, we were fairly insular there and cold. And we moved to California and there was a bicycle race that in Davis, California, it's 200 miles in one day. And a friend of mine, when I was 12, 
he told me about it and I just didn't believe it was possible. Like, how do you ride a bicycle 200 miles in one day? And he said, oh no, they do it all the time. And I said, okay, that, that's what I'm going to do. And so the, the self, you know, I, I, be, I wouldn't call myself a sportsman, but I'm definitely an athlete. And I also was watching people in my school that were, you know, if they were doing team sports or whatever, they, would, they wouldn't spend as much time training as I did, first of all. And then as they got older, they generally didn't do it anymore. You're not going to go up the street here and see somebody playing football or baseball, you know, in the public. And if you're in Brazil, you'll see them playing football on yep. the beach. Of course, they do that there. But here in the States, it all becomes pretty much either a professional ambition or something that you just talk about you did. And so what I saw was as a triathlete running, swimming, cycling, it was something that I would always do. And also the... Um, uh, Dave Scott, who won it five times, was in the same. I was on a Peugeot team in Davis, and Dave Scott was living there. And, and it also kind of demystified it to see that there was a 200-mile bike race that I did the first time when I was 14, and then Dave Scott was winning uh, Kona triathlons. And it was not, again, it wasn't something that was weird and, and off in the distance. It was in, my, in our hometown. So I think that's what provided a lot of reality to it, but also, again, state of the art. You know how good you have to be. And were you ultra competitive? I was. I, I was as good as I could be. I guess I should say I was. I took it very seriously for a long time, and then uh, I did compete as a bicycle racer specifically. And this is back in the early days in the eighties, before anyone had ever won the tour. Actually, competed in the tour uh, was um, Jacques Boyer was the first American to compete in the Tour de France, mm -hmm. and so. We were outsiders. I mean, if I went out cycling, people would just throw bottles at me and stuff. It was, it was, you were competing against the world, I should say. And then every other cyclist you saw was, if they were really good, you probably seen them in a magazine because it was a small community. Uh -huh. But um, I would definitely say I, I put my all into everything. And at the time I did. And then I realized that pretty quickly that it's extremely time consuming. And so what I do now is I don't compete in these long endurance events. What I do is I just focus for X amount of hours maximum per day. So that gives me the rest of the time to do it. But as like so many people I know in the arts, maybe they're, they're really their foundation is ballet and the, and the time and the care that goes into learning that. That'll be their foundation about how they do all their other arts. I would say first and foremost, I'm a cyclist. And I apply that in my physiology and my endurance into everything else I do and make. I mean, last night I was at my shop till four in the morning and it wouldn't be because of anything except to say that I know how far I can push myself. So becoming an inventor and being a cyclist, there was obviously machinery involved as a cyclist. Absolutely. So I'm a cyclist. So, right. so okay. you know, I, I love my bike. I love to ride. I've, I've watched the Tour de France and I'm not, I've not been in it. I've seen it come into Paris. I've cycled from London and then on to Geneva to see all that kind of stuff mm. and, and had great experience and I have a real passion for cycling. When you had your bike all those years ago, were you one of these people that was always tinkering with it to try and find a way for it to be either either more aerodynamic, uh, faster? Were you messing with the gears? You know, did you were you one of those types? First, there was no it. There was no bicycle. So start with no bicycle, right, and then get there. So it meant that I had to work to buy it or I had to build it from all the pieces that I found. And so you're completely right. Bicycles were the foundation. That's the entry point uh, into my mechanics. And my, my father's an electrician, uh, but, but I, we were making bicycles out of scrap parts or whatever we could find or what we could pull out of a dumpster and, and, and racing them. And I was a mechanic for kids that, that were more privileged than me that their parents would buy them a bicycle and they'd go race and break it. So they didn't know how to fix it. So that was my in. I was fixing uh, kids' bicycles when I was 10 that were racing BMX bikes and stuff. My partner now, Craig Calfee, he pretty much invented the carbon fiber bicycle. So again, not being intimidated by what people do, we work in a bicycle factory and we're always making things that are, that are new techniques about fastening things and, and the lightest weight stuff. Bicycles are a very fast way of getting a feedback as in a developer, like you really know when you did something right. You know when if, if it fails, you're trapped, you're stranded, right? And so uh, also, I tell people the only way to make machines really efficient as far as what people use is you have to either pedal it or you have to fly it. And then it will be absolutely efficient. It won't shake, it won't rattle, <laughs> it won't, you know, and you need that. Otherwise, it's going to bite you later. That's, that interests me. That really interests me. So take, take me on this journey then. You've got, you're, you're pulling together a bike out of other pieces of 
stuff that's kicking around. Well, sure. And then one of them that was inspiring, there was a, there was a TV bit about guys that were, they called them clunkers. And they were racing their bicycles down hills and they had big fat tires and it was completely out of fashion at the time. Everyone in the United States had one of two bicycles. They either had a Schwinn Varsity uh-huh. or they had a Raleigh. But there was nothing else. This is back in the 70s. And, and I'd seen a quick TV spot. And these guys are now legends now. And I actually have met a few of them, uh, Gary Fisher and, and others, that were just in Marin racing their bicycles down these hills. You couldn't ride them up, but they would just bang down. So I found some uh, old kind of uh, like as the equivalent of a Cushman cart. These were some fat tire bikes that were used in a foundry for the guys to ride around and they had baskets on them. And there was actually a girl's bike. It was called the Hollywood Bicycle, Schwinn Hollywood. And it was pretty clear that the frame was gonna bend up. So I, I cut some pieces into it and I made some new frame bits and I sent it off with my dad to work and he welded it up. But by the time I was running this thing down mountains and we were actually jumping them into lakes as well. And we would have a lanyard on us so that the thing wouldn't float away in a stream. But I was fully $5.50 into this That's bike. amazing. Yeah, but I, that's what we had. and so. Honestly, if uh, in poverty, there's immense creativity is required. Mm. Especially, again, if you have the state of the art in your mind and you know what you need to do, then you have to find a way. And so that, I guess that was the foundation of the technique of it. So tell me about your, a little bit about your dad so I can understand him better and what your relationship like was with him because clearly you were working on some stuff together. So the, My parents never got in my way. I'll say that. So So... They, uh, my father uh, is probably my, my folks are my favorite people. They're t- still together. They're still alive. I'm very lucky. And uh, he came over from Hungary in 56. He was one of the students that started the uprising, a revolution in Hungary. So uh, he always gave me a different way to look at life in the United States. So although we might have been living here in LA or in, in I grew up in Ohio as well, it, I always felt like he was a little odd and i always thought it'd be interesting to have a normal dad and then as i became a little more aware of what normal was the more and more i appreciated his input and also we would spend our summers in hungary uh with my family have uh, a big family there he had six brothers so there's a lot of molnars running around in hungary i have uh, violinists in the vienna opera and doctors and such and my uh, my uncle Dejer was an inventor also and a professor at uh, the university in budapest so uh, good family there and, and a lot of support when we would go over. But my father was, uh, as, again, as an electrician, he would always teach us science. He would teach us how circuitry worked, etc. He was brilliant with his hands and building things. And we always had tools. Uh, he, he, he never gave us money. And my folks, it was, there was no allowance and there were no toys. And, uh, but they never stopped me. The one time I found out later, actually, I was reading books about... Um, uh, I was got infatuated with hang gliders when I was 11, and I decided I was going to build one. And uh, <laughs> as you do, <laughs> so I started fashioning it together, and I needed some parts. and And they thought it was kind of funny that I was going to go off and do this. And then they started realizing that I was actually going to pull it off. And so I didn't know until about two or three years ago they actually sabotaged my efforts because they thought I was going to start flying this thing. And it ended up, I started flying balloons, uh, helping in balloons when I was 12. That's when I started professionally, uh, you know, basically in the aviation world. Do you have brothers and sisters that are similar to you or are they very different characters? I have two brothers and they're, uh, they're, they're both smarter than me and they both have stayed close to where we moved back when we got to, uh, we moved to California from Ohio and they've stayed close to that area where I have tended to branch out farther because I'm the, I'm the aviator in the group and, uh, and they're, they're brilliant and they do what they do, but they, uh, they don't tend to sway as far as I try to go. You said your mom and dad are your favorite people. Yeah, I'm lucky, like I said, yeah. Being able to spend time with them. My, my, my parents are in their late seventies now, mm. so you're a few years older than me. So your parents, similar ages? My father's 90. Oh, wow. And it's pretty amazing. I, uh, I just had my heart checked out, actually. I was, I'm 57 today. I was, so my grandfather died when he was 56. My father, as I stated, had s- six brothers. They've all died, and everyone all died of heart disease. And so, and none of them made him past 70s. My father's now 90. And so what it's done, I thought I would be dead by 56, and I've lived accordingly. And so now I'm 
kind of positioning myself. So I, what, what do I need to do for the next 30 years? So it's kind of an interesting state of mind to be in. I'm, I'm healthy. And uh, I honestly will say on the science side, I was, people have always told me that it doesn't matter what I do to take care of myself. Ultimately, my genetics are going to kill me. But if you look at the distance that people have been recording honest medical science, not from bloodletting or whatever, it's not that old. And I don't know that there would honestly be that much data about people who don't really fall that far from the tree. I mean, if you have a big family and they say, come over, we're having Italian food and everyone's going to smoke some cigars and maybe we'll have some wine. How many family members just say, you know, what? I won't participate in any of that. Very so rare. I think it's a rare data point. And I, I would like to throw it back and say, maybe you can actually take care of yourself to where you don't uh, die of heart disease mm. based on your efforts. We'll see. So Did you, I completely waste your time on that answer? No, not at all. Okay. Not at all. I'm fascinated by this relationship with with your brothers and oh, your brothers, sorry, and your mum and dad. The fact that you know, I, I look at my mum and dad now, and obviously through my early years or my youth, my parents got divorced when I was seven, and and you know, my dad was my hero, but he was at arm's reach, mm. you know? And so b being my hero at arm's reach, he was always somebody, you know, I, I championed. Mm. But as he's got older, it's almost like um, he's support for me mm. or he's, um, you know, you want your parents to be proud of you. Mm. It feels like he's not as proud as me. I, 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 I've got a book. I don't often tell this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I want to hear um, it. I wrote a book three years ago, a business related book. And my dad, when I saw him, I had not seen him since before COVID, but I saw him in April and uh, we were having lunch together with the rest of the family. He said, mm -hmm. I read your book. Your dad, and yeah. I was like, no way you read my book. He's like, yeah, I read it from front to back twice. I'm like, dad, I can't tell you how pleased I am that you took the time to read it. Thank you so much. He's like, no, no worries. No worries. I said, well, what did you think of it? And he went, yeah, plagiarism. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me. He went, oh, I've read this kind of stuff before. I'm like, do you know what plagiarism is? That's copying. He said, yeah, it's copying. And so my sisters were like, dad. But it was like. The answer is he read it again. Even if he read it before, <clears throat> he read it again and he read it twice. So maybe it was an important thing for him to hear. Yeah, maybe. But, may, may, but for me, it was that one moment that he could have said, okay, you, you know what? There's some parts of your book that I don't agree with, but I'm delighted that you decided to write a book. It wasn't one moment that he could have done that. It was just another moment that he didn't in yeah. your life. Absolutely. So maybe that's not what you need to hope for. <laughs> that's a fair point, actually. My experience with my family is, is I, when I'm with them, I want to have just, just have the least amount of conflict yes. possible. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and none of them are going to change. And that's fine. And my, like I said, I grew up, we constantly we were moving. And I grew up, my brothers were my best friends. We were always changing friends, but they were always my brothers. And so they were always supportive. And my older, my older brother still is. He still helps me with some mad projects and things. It's great. I don't think many people will talk to somebody like you about relationships and family because the, the, the crux of your kind of knowledge, expertise, creativity has come through you being an inventor. And but what I can fix for them. <coughs> that's, that's a really good point. Let's well. cut to the chase. <laughs> what can I do for you? Yeah, okay, that's a fair point. And so for me, it's trying to understand that relationship that somebody has, you know, where the inspiration came from. The fact you're going to make a hang glider when you were young, you know, you could clearly see there was there was lots of stuff going through your mind. Well, but you were like, great to pick up on the bicycle part, and that maybe was the case for you. Were you were you a kid whose your bicycle came at Christmas with a bow on it? Uh, yeah, yeah. My, mom, my dad went bankrupt. And so what my dad would do, I had a, I had a rally chopper and my dad took one out of a skip and he fixed it. He's an engineer, he fixed it, polished it. Uh, he painted some paint on some bits that were rusty and whatnot. And he gave it to me as my, my uh, Christmas gift. So okay. that's, that's how I got it. And he was very careful about showing me how I looked after it. And so, because they didn't, it didn't have much money and it's like, they protect it for goodness right. sake. And so as a kid that, yeah, I didn't get parts, but um, I, I never got a new anything. It was always a secondhand something, but I, Hey, I didn't care. Yeah. I, I, I had a chopper, you know, right. no, it's brilliant. Who, who cares? And then I got a rally racing bike. And so all that kind of stuff happens, but always secondhand. So no, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I don't come from money. I don't come from a, a financially secure background, but there were always different people in my school uh, and you were one type. 
in my school. A boffin? And, and no, you won't, because you know that word geek, that didn't exist when I was young, you know? I'm 52. No, I'm not a geek. There wasn't, a there wasn't geek. Yeah. It was, it was, the, there was, and it wasn't creative because creative people were something else. But you, it's almost like there was a group at school that saw the world a little bit differently, mm. you know? And I think I was one of the kids that was just drifting through school, mm. finding a way to get out of it as soon as I could because I wanted to find out how to make money, mm. you know? And I don't think I- What were I, you going to do with it when you had it? I didn't know. But because I didn't have any, I wanted. I remember, uh, I remember saving up and buying a polo shirt, a Lacoste polo shirt, and a little crocodile logo on here. And I remember saved up and I had a, a paper round. I delivered newspapers. I worked collecting glasses in a bar. I worked on a market stall at the weekend, and so I had all these little jobs. And you know, it came together. And I, over the course of a period of time, I saved the money and I bought the t-shirt. And then I saved the money and I bought the sneakers. Okay. And 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 for me, it was just like, how do I make money? You know, if you work really hard, you can make some money. And so that that consumed me as a youngster. So when I see people like you that were sitting thinking completely differently to me. That always fascinates me. And it's like, where did that come from? Me wanting to make money came from not having money. So where did your creativity and your ideas come from? I'd say back to the beginning, which was... The bike? No, before that, reading books about inventors and understanding the process they would go through. Okay. And... and I always thought that the process was an important, it was constant. I mean, every person's looking for pattern recognition, of uh -huh. course. So I've, I'm five or I'm six and I'm reading, uh, you know, about George Westinghouse or Nikola Tesla, or I'm reading, I, I read Einstein's theory of relativity when I was in fifth grade and I didn't fully understand it, of course, but there were bits of it that I took as philosophy lessons almost. And what it meant was it wasn't about getting money. What happened with these people was they would achieve something they wanted to do. And riding on that, it would catapult them in the best case. That's why they wrote books yeah. into doing the next thing that they saw they wanted to do, etc. So there was always an ambition about an activity or an exploration or a process that was their adventure in life and and acquiring things was never a, was never one of the benefits uh there's nothing more boring than to me than when somebody wants to show me around their stuff and and you know i say like so people will tell me oh you got to meet bob he's really into cars i said oh okay well and then and then they show me something. i said oh you you bought this thing so what was your involvement? Well, they bought it, right? So they, they won a lottery or something that's equivalent to that. Look, in Silicon Valley, you know, uh, if you're attached to a, an, a unicorn, it's almost indistinguishable from being a royal or winning the lottery, okay? It's not the kind of thing, you, there are people who have hundreds of millions of dollars who have never experienced a drop of sweat on their forehead, but they will tell you that they worked hard. They worked so hard for what they have. Now, in that case, if those people are interesting, as you stated, if you had money, the output was a shirt or a pair of shoes, so maybe you felt better about yourself. If somebody's interesting, then they'll take that and say, well, gosh, you know what? I have, uh, I have enough support that I don't need to find a way to feed myself for the next 600 generations. So now that I don't have to worry about feeding the next 600 generations of my progeny, why don't I just do something interesting? And what you find out is that they're usually still incredibly conservative and much more interested in what they lose. It, you know, you spoke with Chris Voss recently, yeah. and he pointed something out, which is, is uh, I won't argue with Chris, because he's probably right. He stated <laughs> that when people go into negotiations, they're usually more interested in what they're going to lose. They're concerned more about what they might lose than what they might gain. Okay. Yeah. So when you say guys like me, if I had to quantify what a guy like me is, first and foremost, I don't care as much about what I'm going to lose as what I can gain, because maybe I don't have that much to lose, right? Or I don't risk the things. I still have all my fingers attached. People think I'm a daredevil. I say, look, all my fingers are attached. I don't have any, you know, I've replaced all my skin many times, but they're still, they're still on. So I would just say that I do consider myself a person that wants to gain something. And the other one is as a developer, if, if, if I gave you a plot of land across the street, you've seen this neighborhood, right? If I just said, here's a piece of land, what would you do with it? The average person would say, oh my gosh, we could put a gas station there. We could put a, uh, an amazing uh, an art event or something. And I would just try to take out of whatever's there. I would just strip it down to nothing. I'd just make it a park. 
I would, I would take out everything. And so that's the opposite of what most people do. Mm. They're not, they're, they're, they want to save themselves and they want to add things. I constantly want to find that new achievement and I want to simplify it. Wow. That's fascinating. Talk to me about, talk to me about how you got interested in aviation. I think about my dad. Okay. So I'm going to go back to my dad and give you some context here. My, my, my dad's an engineer. He'd worked in the oil industry. He loves ex-army lightweight Land Rovers. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's his thing. All right. And my dad has on his, on his uh, property, he has a barn and in the barn there are, I think, three Land Rovers. Um, one of them he's built into some expedition type thing that he can take and drive it over the mountains. Mm -hmm. And two of them are in pieces. Okay. And he's building them and he takes them apart and he tries to think of different ways. And his grandson, okay, he built him a one in 20 scale of the exact one that he has fabricated it all himself wow. and built it also for his son with a lawnmower engine in his grandson, sorry, to drive sheet around. Metal? Yeah. Sorry. Out of sheet metal. Yeah. Out of sheet metal. Oh, did, wow. did everything. Okay. Yeah. He's very good with his hands. Yeah. And so I look at him and, and, and if you go into that, that, that barn, you're, you're lost. Don't go, don't go in there. If you want to come out in an hour, you're mm -hmm. in there. Okay. You're going to learn everything that he wants to share with you and tell you he comes alive in that environment. You know, that's really something that, that does it for him. And so I, I respect that, you know, I'm like, that's his thing. That's his bag. That's what he loves to do. And, you know, if you want to get involved in that kind of conversation, go, go, go spend time with him because sure. he's wonderful. You know, he's very passionate. So he found his groove essentially. Right. Yeah. How did you find yours? How did aviation for you become the thing? It was sort of the beginning and, and more recently was a shift into it. So starting, well, my mother worked for American Airlines. Okay. So as a kid, we could get on airplanes and go places because she had airplane tickets. And we were living in Long Beach, south of here. My neighbor, when I was three, was a, an Air Force pilot. And he would take me out on his motorcycle and ride me around. And he would point things out. And he'd I remember there was a barrel of oil. And he said, see that barrel there? It's extremely heavy. He said, but when we're flying, we have to take that with us. So we have to find ways to make our machine strong enough to lift lots of that oil. That's how we power it, just like this mini, this scooter. So I was three, and he's teaching me about weights and measures and and, and aircraft, and 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 again demystifying it. So right right then, I and and I remember uh, my mother will tell me that we we did a flight to Hungary to visit family, and back in the day you used to go sit in a cockpit with the pilots, of course, because you're a little kid and they bring you in. And she said, I'm sitting there and I'm talking to the pilots and asking them these questions about. You know what's the fuel weight and it's this and that and 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 uh and i turned to her and i said well i'll be doing this one day and she just said it never changed from that point so i think it's very important uh that kids will your brain a human brain will seal up when it's seven so you can absorb languages uh, infinitely up until then but but after that it's too late and i think for me the language of aviation and the capacity to travel if that's the exploration part of it was in me before my brain knew better to ignore it. And then uh, moving forward, ultimately I, I, was, I flew jets in the Air Force. I was a flight engineer, I flew transport jets and I was flying small airplanes. Now I have gyro, I fly gyroplanes that I build myself. And I, was, I helped start the private rocket industry. We were building uh, a manned rocket when I was 19. And uh, the idea there was the space shuttle was going no place. I was in the Air Force and there was a, a big scandal at the time what the United States was paying for equipment. And it was across the street from where I worked. They were spending $800 on a claw hammer. They were, had these $80,000 coffee makers. I used to fix those coffee makers. They were nice coffee makers, I have to say. And the price tags were on them. And so I would go work. I was making probably, I think it was $517.32 a month, okay? That was my my real income, and out of that started building spacecraft and putting myself through school and learning to fly airplanes. And it was because the focus was, there is so much money being spent on this. There has got to be much more than that being spent by NASA. And they're just going around in circles with a space shuttle. So I teamed up with Bob Truax and uh, went down the, the trail of the space industry. And then fast forward to about, uh, I would say it was almost around 2000, 2004. I was working, uh, I was a judge for the X Prize, which was a competition to um, build a, a spacecraft that would take passengers to space. At that point, what was happening, people were jumping in with so much money. I said, you know, you guys can't fail. 
It's, we've done it with nothing. There's no possible way for you to fail at this. It's just too lucrative. But the other thing was the actual activities of being involved in the space industry is not particularly conducive to a happy life. You're, you're long, cold days stuck in a machine shop, you know. So aviation returned to me in that respect because I said, I really want to go out and travel more. You're never going to be Luke Skywalker going from the ice planet to the jungle planet with Yoda to the cloud city in a three-hour movie if you're actually dealing space in this lifetime. We, I know guys with billions of dollars have never been to space. That, but they keep spending on it and they keep doing things, but they're not actually having that activity. The real enjoyment is coming from going out on their boat or flying around. So that's something you can actually do in this lifetime. You can have enormous adventures uh, traveling through the air and it's about travel. Again, it's about going places. If you're stuck on the ground, you know, you might, you might not be able to get anywhere. You may have a tough time escaping. So that's aviation for me right now is it's, it's about adventure. Have companies like Tesla and the car industry, the auto industry, got it wrong choosing electricity? Porsche chose electricity. Yeah. So 1899, I think. The first aircraft were electric, uh, powered aircraft. It was a blimp with a lead-acid battery, okay, an airship. Yeah, yeah. So, so what happened was, so your question, I guess what I'm saying is, none of these people chose that. It, that, that was an option. And then there was another option that was chosen, which was to burn oil, uh -huh. okay? So burning oil became a, a way of... Uh, Crazy energy, I guess. Mm, there's an enormous amount of energy in it, but what happened was the, the, there was no, the, the economy of the design went away. So things became bellicose. Machines, people take, you have a 100-pound person using an, a 9,000-pound machine to take them to the top of a mountain so that they can buy a coffee, right? And you have to pollute to come back down the hill. So that engine has to run, otherwise you won't be able to steer because your power steering's gonna go out. You hit your brake three times, they're gonna jam up. So right now we, re we require vehicles to pollute in order to go downhill. Think about that. So to your question, the electricity is a mechanism for having very reliable motors, okay? So, if you look around here, there's a lot of destitute people here. When they have nothing, the first thing they do is they get a set of wheels. They're going to find a shopping cart, okay? Mobility is nobility. If you don't have that, you're already a step back. So the, so the genie's out of the bottle. People don't want to have to walk everywhere because there are alternatives. And if you want to go long distances, you need to find another way. The thing that's great about electricity is that you can mine it from the energy around you, okay? So you can say, oh, well, the wind is blowing. I'd like to tap into that a little bit. You're not gonna make fuel out of wind as easily as you are going to store electricity or perhaps just directly change it. You can say, if you're, if you're in a sailboat, you're gonna throw your sails up, you're gonna use the wind, right? The sun is beating, you're gonna get some electricity. So it's become, uh, there's so many ways to use it. And, and, the, and, the, and the aviation industry had a really big opportunity when in 1990, uh, Sony came out, they had a Handycam, which was, basically not having a very long capacity to run. And so they bit the bullet and they developed, uh, I want to say uh, through some developers in the U.S. actually, uh, lithium-ion batteries, and they made them available in large numbers. That dropped the weights of batteries by 10x. So w when you're developing aircraft, you have constants and variables. One of the constants are you and I officially both weigh about 180 pounds. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and weigh 16,000 pounds. It's not going to happen. You're never going to weigh three. So you kind of say, all right, this is about, these are the constants, these are the variables, these are the probabilities, these are the statistics. And out of that, you form this design. Now, uh, with automobiles, the design came from trains, uh, horses, the width of the vehicles. They're, most of the energy that we're using is to push air out of the way. Back in the 1930s, uh, a local guy from here, actually in Burbank, was um, uh, from Lockheed, uh, and I f I'm, f it's, I'm forgetting his name all of a sudden, but he was, and when he was in school, he uh, was working in the aerodynamics lab, and he went to uh, some developers, er, the companies in Detroit, and said, look, I took your, um, your, your headlight, and I stuck it inside the fender instead of sitting out the, on the outside. I've reduced the, the requirement of 14 horsepower on your car. 
the streamlining became an important part of American culture at that point. And uh, Art Deco kind of came out of streamlining. And, uh, and right now what's happened is we've gotten completely away from that by using these really bombastic systems. So a simple number on the electricity side, yeah, it's a good thing and we need to start using it as a way to get around because we can access it so many ways and we do not need to pollute if we use it. And the other thing we need to do culturally is we need to shift having people sitting next. And when you said that the car company, I call it the Model T company, okay, because it's a Model T to me, right? So you have somebody sitting here, nobody's sitting here, nobody's sitting there, nobody's sitting there, nobody's sitting there. That hasn't changed from the Model T. What's happening is people are continuing to say, well, you know, the public, if we want to have a cash transfer, we're going to have to make them happy. No one's ready to just say, you know what, you guys have been wrong all along. We're going to jump on the grenade and do this in a way that's really compelling, okay? That's really different. We're going to stop shoving air out of the way. The difference between a lead acid battery and a lithium ion battery is about 10x. If you put one person in front of the other instead of side by side, you've reduced your requirement of effort by about 10x. Mm -hmm. So rather than sit here and say, jump up and down and say, well, we got to wait until things are better, batteries are better. No, no, no. Why don't you just sit here? Oh, well, that would be really weird. Well, what if we just don't have another empty seat over there? Well, you never know. Grandma might stop by. Well, why don't you borrow another car when grandma comes? Why don't you just stop doing that? So what's happening is, is industry and people's perceptions are not willing to get out of the comfort zone enough to actually say, we need to stop shoving air out of the way and polluting this world. You know, and, and the world is fighting back. As I said to you earlier, you know, we push air out of the way and then a big storm comes and some people say, it's a bad storm. It's a good storm. It's pushing air out of the way to take the same heat that you stored in the water and now shove that back out into the atmosphere. It didn't have a choice. It's not mean. It's not a bad storm. It's just a very effective storm at cooling down the earth, which is what the earth wants to do right now. Wow. That's okay. not the question you were no, it's posing. That's sorry, but that's the answer you're going to get. <laughs> Kelly Johnson ran Skunk Works in Burbank. And he was the one that was, when he was in college, started streamlining cars. And uh, you look back in the 30s, you, can, you can't buy an, an iron or a toaster that isn't streamlined. But right now, there's a very bombastic situation where, you, you know, it's ridiculous. I want to have a Hummer, but it's going to be an electric Hummer. And it's going to be 9,000 pounds. Okay? And it's going to be so heavy that the tires will not be able to manage the torque. So the tires are gonna get heavier, but then your ride is gonna get worse. So we're gonna add shocks. And then we're gonna have to repave the road because when it's hot out, you're gonna sink into the ground. But that's okay, because that person sitting in the left seat gets whatever they want, as long as they write a check. Let's just make them happy. Let's go ahead and take the money from their wallet and put it in our wallet and do whatever stupid thing we have to do in order to do that. It's okay, as long as the profit line is good, right? Well, yeah, that's bang how long on. can we get away with that? We're not. That's that's bang on. I hadn't even thought about it like that. I know you think about it all the time, and it's common sense. To I you. work on it all the yeah. time. Yeah, I don't okay, just talk, think let's, about let's talk, it. Let's talk about inventing because not many people are inventors, are they? I mean, you're an inventor. I'm sure, I'm sure as you. As soon as you have a customer, whatever you are, that's what you are. So I'll just say, if, if I told you I was a professional basketball player, but I'm not very good at it, you'd say, you're not even good. I say, yeah, but I've got somebody that will pay me for it. So I'm an inventor, fortunately, because it's something I do, but it's also because somebody was willing to hire me. And I only need one customer to do that. What was your first major invention? What was the first thing that you invented that you were like, this, this is like, da-da? It was part of a team, I think, with the Rocket guys. Yeah. When we were doing... Uh, the Nan Speed record. No, prior to that. This is uh, with Bob Truax. Okay. We were constantly inventing things as making a new rocket ship that was designed to carry a person in space. It was yeah. designed to be a reusable spacecraft. And I think we, we would come up with things pretty quickly there. And also, I have uh, jet engines that don't use any, any, don't have any moving parts. I worked with a guy named, uh, I was his protege, uh, uh, Ray Lockwood. He was uh, chief scientist at Hiller Aircraft. So... I'm lucky that these guys I've worked with go back to the beginning. I've, I've met people that worked with, I've worked with people that worked with Robert Goddard, who kind of, so I would just say this stuff was there. And then uh, people will rapidly misassociate inventing with patenting, okay? So patenting is just a formality of 
uh, containing an invention or potentially disclosing an invention. But I'd say the stuff we did with the rockets and what we were doing with the pulse jet engines was a lot of fun because it was, uh, there were a lot of eureka moments in there where just things flat out didn't work and then you just bang your head against the wall and suddenly it was clicking and it was great. Yeah, but arduous. And working in a team, you thrive off of each other in, yeah, in the same course. way as well. Yeah. 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 And do you find do you find working as part of a team is better for you than working on your own? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The collaboration is the best part. And, and the people have asked me. One person asked me recently, and I didn't have an answer. And I thought about it, and 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 uh, he said, "What what spins your crank?" And I said, "When I have an idea that I think is good, and then other people with a lot more skill than me and all the subsets jump in and they embrace it and they run with it." and something comes out of it that I hadn't envisioned, that becomes the part that I hear or the part that I see, whether it's music or machinery, whatever. And he said, oh, wow, that's interesting. That's just pure ego. I said, okay, whatever it is, <laughs> then that's what it is. You asked me what spun my crank. But, but yeah, it's absolutely collaborating with people that are wildly better at it than I am. I definitely always try to be the dumbest guy in the room because then you can, you can learn a lot faster. Uh -huh. I mean, you never want to have your mouth open around smart people. What, what are you working on at the moment? I focused on the two things, the street wing, which is my, uh, I call it the Porsche 911 of flying cars. So the Porsche 911 is this shape again. It was built around said, hey, mm -hmm. you weigh 180 pounds and your empty seat is over here, whatever. And then they changed all these kinds of mechanisms on the inside, but it hasn't changed much because it says the ergonomics is good enough. So I've made a, f I've developed a flying car that I call the street wing uh, with some really talented people that I know. And, uh, it's at the stage now where it's effectively a concept car. So it's driving down the street and I have a flying version of it, uh, which is a Quickie 2, an aircraft that's got about 600 hours on it. So I effectively have a full scale flying version that I'm going to be practicing with more to get my chops up on it really well. So I wanna build this first flying car version of it, the street wing, get it flying. That's something I wanna do as a demonstrator and as an exploration vehicle. And how close to that are you? I, I move at the speed of cash, so I am, <laughs> I am I'd say 95% all the way to what the design is effectively going to be, and I need to do some mechanical stuff on the inside. None of it's daunting, and any of it can be done by other people. There's a point, what I, what I'm, I try to really differentiate between, as an inventor, it's a lot of squiggles to get to where you wanna go. That's inventing. Engineering is when you say, I'm here, we need to get there. It's a pretty straight line. And as soon as that's possible to be done by someone else, I like to hand it off to someone who's better at it than me. It's also the kind of thing where they can put their time into it and another opportunity for, for me to put my time into something else. Is that because you, in, in, that, that's where you lose a little bit of the excitement and interest when you've got to that first or that, that, that part of it? No, they're just better at it. Okay, so it's, they're just better it's good self-awareness. Yeah. It's just like saying, actually, other people are better at this. But also, it's, it's an opportunity cost of your time. So, of course. So then you're not taking on another challenge. And so people sometimes, they, they chastise me. They said, oh, you need to go and learn all this. And I said, look, I'd rather let it sit and get on to the next battle. Because what happens is, on the visionary side of it, you start putting those targets out front. Uh, there are people who say they, or they're big fans of science fiction. I know guys that worked on uh, cell phones that flipped out because they used to watch Star Trek. Well, it's nice that that idea was placed in their head, but where were your own ideas, dude? <laughs> is, that, is that all you got? But it, for them, it became a quest, right? That was their Mount Everest, was to take something that they saw. And so for me, my ambition is to come up with some of those opportunities and, and try to find people that it will resonate with. My friend Leon actually reached out to me recently and helped with this car enormously. He was working on uh, uh, Paul Allen's aircraft, the Rock. It was a straddle launch. And a lot of guys I knew were working on that for years because Paul wanted a specific thing and he funded it. And these guys put their time and effort into it. But then suddenly when he passed away, it wasn't sure if this thing ever really had a mission. And so these guys are really talented. Like, and so he reached out to me and says, dude, what are you doing? And I sent him a photograph. I sent him a drawing. I said, this. I'd gotten to that point. He said, I'm building that. And he's built 60 airplanes, but it's the first one he ever built in his garage because he just needed to know that what he was going to do was really going to have an impact. And as sure as he helped, I am going to keep carrying that torch and say, look, I appreciate what you did and I am going to make it work, right? And I'm getting a little emotional right now because it means a lot to me when these people jump in and help. 
Yeah. It means a lot. And I need that. You know, it's hard to go on your own. So the other thing I'm doing right now is with my partner, Craig, who I told you made the, uh, 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 Craig, the carbon bicycle. We, we've been working closely, closely tangentially with Zero Motorcycles, which is an electric motorcycle company, and Lightning Motorcycle. They're friends of ours that own these and run these companies. And one thing I've been seeing is that uh, these, these guys are making machines. It's a very similar problem in early bicycles. When, when people first started making bicycles, you couldn't steer them. They were just a wheel in front of a wheel. And people would look at them and they'd say, what is this thing? And they'd say, oh, it's a vehicle. You can travel on it. But up until then, people had only been traveling on horses and, you know, mules. And, you know, they would sitting on a goat maybe. And so the bicycle industry required that these machines look like animals so that people could at least connect the idea that this was going to be something you would ride. Got it. Okay. And people laugh about that. That's where we are today. Everyone laughing at people that would make a bicycle look like a cheetah is the same person that wants to see batteries put in a Ford Mustang, okay? We're in exactly that same place. People cannot let go of what they think is a ride. The same thing happens with aircraft right now. People are saying, well, when are there gonna be batteries big enough to run a 737? The 737 wasn't designed for batteries. It was designed for gasoline. It was designed for jet fuel. That's the size of it. So what's happened with the motorcycle industry, which I consider to be very progressive because there's very few boundaries to entry to make motorcycles. Uh, the people that are making electric ones want them to look like these racing bikes that mm. people have been you know, winning the, the, the Isle of Man TT, TT races, or anything. And they're making these incredibly these things that one person sits on and they're crouched down and they can go outrageous amounts of speed. Meanwhile, you go out on the street here and you've got 12 year old girls riding down the street on a scooter in a bikini with flip flops, you know, just holding a phone and taking pictures of themselves. And there's someone, I'm thinking, no one is addressing the youth's desire to ride electric scooters again. Mobility is nobility, and that's a way for them to get around. The genie's out of the bottle that you may not have to walk there. So what we're doing right now is we're building a motorcycle that I think is going to be revolutionary in its simplicity, and we're going to roll that out here in Los Angeles on the uh, 17th, the, wow. 15th, the 16th and 17th. So I rolled out the street wing, the design at Jitex in Dubai, and uh, I think you're going to come see my shop, and mm -hmm. I'll show you what it's like in solar exposition mode. And then you're not going to get to see it until then, because I don't have it here to show you. But we are already drive testing this machine, and I think it's going to be a really great motorcycle. And it's going to fly in the face of everyone's perception that something needs to look like a Japanese racing bike, because they're amazing. You know, those, but there's no reason to duplicate that. Tell me why you got emotional just then. What is it that, it, it, what's the struggle that you have or the frustration you have or the challenge that really, really grinds at you? It's always cold on the leading edge. And so tell me about that. It, it's just a matter of, uh, I use the resources I have, which are limited by when you went to work to buy a shirt, you allocated that much time and you came out with a shirt. So what I do is when I have to go back to work, I work and I allocate my time to it, but there's an opportunity cost. I have to stop fighting the battle I want. We choose our battles and you have to be careful, obviously, when your resources are limited. So I have to go out and hunt and gather as much as I can and go there. The thing that's most precious is when I hunt and gather someone else's precious time, right? That's a commitment on both sides because if they're going to offer their skills to me because I respect their skills, I am going to honor their efforts by never stopping, right? I can't just say, hey, man, I really appreciate what you did for me and what we did for this thing. But, you know, uh, it's Thursday and I've, got, I've decided to take up bowling and I really am going to focus on my game right now. Like, no, the minute you bring those people in and the reason they do show up is they've been in the trenches with me before and they know I'm not going to stop. Is it, is it this despite sense. the lack of material tools. Is it this desire to not want to let them down or is it a desire to want to honor their, their commitment and respect their commitment to you? I wouldn't have asked them in the first case. So I'm not worried about letting them down. I, they know I'm going to give it whatever I can. Yeah. What I'm suggesting is that 
it's a respect for their time. And that, like I said, that's when somebody says, what spins your crank? That's the thing, is collaborating with these people. I can, I can bang off a list of names that you would just have you scratching your head because they're in so many disciplines, okay? You say, how, in, how did you get this person singing on your record? How did you get this person fixing your, you know, your toilet or what? I mean, it's just to be like, wait a minute, like the most overqualified people. But the reason is because everyone that is passionate about what they do, uh, they're going to be freer with their time if they know you're fighting a battle maybe that they would really like to take on if they weren't hunting a gathering on their own. So it's a little bit of my responsibility to be the tip of the spear for these folks. Get it. And that's what I do in exchange for it. But yeah. you can't be at the tip of the spear and then just say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take I the month it. off, right? Yeah, I get it. I and you're I at effect of what you have. And there's not necessarily a supportive climate, a supportive climate for what I do. Who, who, don't who, confuse financiers with developers or inventors. Just uh, because someone's rich doesn't mean they know what they're doing. There's a lot of dilettantes out there and uh, they're finding out, oh, I was wrong all along. And there's a lot of sycophants around them who said, oh, they were always wrong, but I put my kid through ballet class. Okay. Okay. Who inspires you? Because you know what I've been thinking as you've been talking Alive to me, or dead? Something alive. Who? I, 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 Frankie Zapata's great. As you talk, I always think about people like you. And before I interviewed you today, I thought about people like you in a more, in a more mechanical sense. You know, the way that, the way that men are described, you know, engineers are described to be people that understand things. And, 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 and women are more often described as people that understand feelings. But so I kind of, I, I'd already put you in a box myself and allocated you to that space. And I was really wrong because it's people that actually spin your crank in the words that you use. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's really, it's people and how they make you feel and how you then make them feel that really interests me about this because I wasn't expecting that from you today. I have, uh, as I stated, my grand, my uncle was a professor of engineering. Uh -huh. So I would say that I probably have some aptitude for mechanical things. Yeah. And that is something that I can fall back on. And, and I, uh, I have a lot of hands on time. So if you go watch a dentist, that's really good at what they do that to me is inspiring mm -hmm. or a surgeon. Surgeons are super lucky. And I considered becoming a surgeon because it's amazing to watch them work. But the great thing is that they don't have to get everything right because animals and humans heal. So you don't have to paint it. You don't, you, you just say, go home, you give them two aspirin and they come back in a couple of weeks and they're better. That doesn't happen in the shop. Like, as soon as you make something perfect, it's just entropy from there. And then the times I have a tough time is when people come in and they bang something around. It's like, wait a minute, you broke something and now you have to do it again, right? I, I lose it at that point. So I would just say the people that inspire me are the ones that can, can think and talk and speak with their hands and have a lot of uh, uh, skill in what they do. It's actually interesting. I, there's, uh, my folks had a magazine about genius. It was just some, something that came out recently. It just had a picture of Einstein on the front. Who's, if you grasp what he did and the, and the path that he got to his decisions, it's, that's inspiring, okay? How he worked that through. Really interesting approach. And uh, what was, and I didn't actually know what it is to be genius. And I was hoping this magazine was gonna explain it. And what was very weird about it and left me wondering was, it would talk about Michelangelo, it would talk about Da Vinci, et cetera. And it listed their attributes, but it never listed skill, which I would find that odd to think that the skill that Michelangelo had wasn't relevant to his genius or that the capacity for Da Vinci to draw and to write backward was not in any way relevant to genius. So I think that... Uh, if a person does have skill and you recognize what it takes to get that, that's very inspiring. Mm -hmm. So whoever it is, and, and, it, and it doesn't have to be at a marquee level. If you can spot it, that, that's inspiring.
I think when I ask the question about about who inspires you, I think who inspires me. And I try. Are you projecting what you're asking? Or you know, when I ask you the question, as I ask you the question, and I'm waiting for your answer, it then makes me. And as you give me your answer, it then then makes me think about who inspires me, and I think about people that are, are kind of taken on the war, you know, to to save humanity in some way, or to get humanity to <clears throat> kill itself slower. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's not the ambition. <laughs> yeah, people aren't going to save the world; they're just polluting it at a rapid rate. It's really the world interesting is, you say the, that. The world is, uh, world was fine without us. What were we? Okay, so we're gonna. <coughs> so I, th I threw out the name Frankie Zapata because I think he's he's brilliant. Uh, uh -huh. I, I I was at, uh, I did a presentation in Turkey, and I was a keynote speaker at the end, and he was at the beginning. I was hoping to get to meet up with. I haven't met him, but also Eve Rossi. These guys are real aviators. They're real developers. They stick their neck out. And I appreciate what they do a lot. And also with Eve Rossi, he was, I think he's probably in Dubai or he was certainly sponsored by it, but I got to meet him a few years ago and I love his, uh, his approach to what he's done as an aviator. Very, very safe the way he does it. People will perceive that there's risk and there is risk. There's always risk, but it's not, we're not daredevils. We just understand kind of the limits between what you can plan for and where you get. You've, you've kindly invited us to come and see what you're working on at the moment. Mm. Okay. When we get there, what will we expect to see? Well, hopefully not what was happening last night, which was me underneath it, cutting the axle and a bunch of sparks flying around. I'll send you a picture of it. <laughs> so that's, that's what I was doing at 4 a.m. last night. What I, you're going to give me a couple of days, so I'll button it up. But what I want to show you is my illustration of a solar powered. So it's a, I'm developing a new flying car that is designed so that ideally you can fly and drive the rest of your life without ever needing fuel and needing almost no maintenance, okay? So it's great for the explorer, for the traveler, et cetera, okay? Yep. A person that wants to go places and not have to walk, right? And fly over things. So, so that's great. That kind of opens up the world we have a little bit. And in order to, uh, something that I had kind of on the back burner, I was just going to position it in performance as a machine. But in the last couple of years, it's suddenly becoming, uh, you know, an item and people, I thought I was just going to have it as a Trojan horse that I've got this very high performance flying car. It's really fast on the ground by car standards. It goes a couple hundred miles an hour. I built, I helped Craig build his land speed racing car. So I built a 700, 800 mile an hour car. So fast is really fast, but not that fast, but fast enough to race. And in the air about 250 or so. And, and but the Trojan horse was gonna be that I would have solar capacity on this thing so it could charge itself or drive down the road just in the sunlight, okay? and you could park it, and if the wind was blowing at night, at an airport, if you park your airplane, you normally point it into the prevailing wind so it doesn't spin around. A Cessna, the propeller's never gonna spin. That wind is not enough to move a, a piston in a cylinder. But if you have an electric aircraft and you park it and the wind is blowing against your propeller, it can spin all night. If you have a rubber band airplane, you just sit there and you take your finger and you turn that propeller and that rubber band gets potential energy stored in it. So what you're going to see is a rubber band airplane, flying car, okay, with its solar panel simulated uh, put out. I have a friend, she's a, a, an elementary school teacher, and I said, I need a fake solar panel. So I gave her a $12 piece of canvas, and she went to town on it, and she painted it up. So I'm going to stretch it out for you. And uh, it'll take the space of a real solar panel, but that's where it would be. And what I'm going to do is an aerodynamics test. I'm going to find out by calculating the size of the space, I get enough for potentially 2.3 horsepower to the rear wheel. So if I can do this while you're still here, we'll do it, but probably it's gonna, the test will happen after you go, but you'll get to see the machine. I'm gonna run 2.3 horsepower into the rear wheel and find how fast this thing goes, okay? And that will be based on its drag of the wheels and the wind. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that number is, but we're gonna find out. And then I'm going to run it up. I'm gonna assume it's probably less than 100 kilometers an hour, and then I'm going to run it up to 100 kilometers an hour and find out how much energy does it need for that, how many watts. And once I know those numbers, I can start planning expeditions. Let's say we want to cross Dubai without fuel, or we want to go in across the Emirates, or we want to cross Australia. Then we can start planning that expedition and that demonstration and say, we didn't need any fuel. We flew over Ayers Rock. We started here. We ended there. We met a lot of really fun people on the way, and we got to illustrate what we did. Uh, there's some interesting flights that came up 
uh, one was a guy named um, uh, uh, Raymond. I can't think of his first name, sorry. But uh, he flew a, a solar-powered, Eric Raymond, flew a solar-powered aircraft across the United States, mm -hmm. I think back in the 80s. And I'd never even heard of it. And I'm really kind of deep into this. But the problem was that he was flying so high above everybody that nobody really saw it. And then I met uh, Bertrand Picard recently. He flew around the world in a solar-powered plane. And they landed at San Francisco International. They spent a lot of time out in Hawaii changing out the batteries. So there was no real interaction with it. So they've done these things that are, that are illustrations. But the impact, I have to say, is inadequate to make anyone say, we should embrace this. Let's, let, how do we fit this into our lives? So my ambition is to show you something that a person can kind of wrap their head around yeah. and start feeling like they might want to fit it into their lives as much as I do. And the reason I say that is that I think it's a necessary evolution for travel. Okay. All birds are dinosaurs. They all survived every extinction. We have an extinction schedule. For now until we get down to the workshop. Desa, thank you so much. Your energy is incredible. It's oh. been fantastic talking to you. And I can't wait to get down to that workshop and see what you've got going on there. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm looking forward to having you over. And also, I'm going to throw it out there. I met Noah Rayford and some people at the Museum of the Future, and I work with WET. We've done the Dubai Fountains, and I'll be back over in the Emirates. So I'd, I'd love to uh, follow up. You know, that's your that's your wheelhouse, right? It is my wheelhouse. So I'm yeah, happy yeah. To follow well, when up you come that. to Dubai, for sure, we'll get you on the show. Right, but guaranteed. I'm really keen to see what you've got. I'm keen for everybody that's watching this today to be able to see what you get your hands dirty okay, cool. doing. All right, we'll see you then in the workshop then. Yeah.